This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mayen. And I'm Luc Olivier Meble. And our topic this week is... N64 love episode. Oh, yes, no. people. We're talking about the N64. No, 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 no. I just needed to troll Yannick a bit just to remind him that the N64 is an amazing console. But tonight's topic on our welcome back for hiatus. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading while uh, we were on vacation. Mm. And this reading brought me to this topic. And tonight we'll be talking about iOS app architecture. Awesome. Uh, but first, I have a little bit of follow-up. Of course, um... Did you change your mind about the N64? No. Oh, come on. In fact, I talked to many people while I was in Japan about how bad the N64 is, and most people oh. eventually agreed with me as I laid out my arguments. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is not the follow-up that I was planning on mentioning uh, today. I was planning, of course, on going back to the evergreen topic that we love so much, which is, of course, Apple Pay. Uh, because, of course, we talked uh, on the last episode before I left for Japan about Apple Pay issues with the iPhone X. And I got to witness these issues firsthand in Japan. Um, So as you may recall, there were two different kinds of bugs that the iPhone X, apparently the hardware design, uh, incurs certain issues. Uh, And I believe, I don't remember the exact rate we were talking about, but I think one third of the time you could cause a momentary glitch in the gate. And then one seventh of the time, you could actually lock up the entire gate with your phone. And I didn't notice any of the momentary glitches because again, like these are incredibly minor bugs that you, they're hard to spot. Uh, but I did witness a lot of people jamming the gate. Uh, and by a lot of people, I mean four people over three weeks. Um, so it's not that much. Um, but it, was still very noticeable every time I spotted them. And there are an absolute ton of iPhone 10s in the wild in Japan. So um, just some anecdotal data uh, to give some insight into this issue. Apple has apparently still not done anything to resolve this problem. So hopefully this fall's iPhones are better with regards to Apple Pay in Japan. And it's quite surprising that it did not stop people to uh, get iPhone 10s if you say that they were pretty popular. In your time in Tokyo. There are a lot of people on Japanese Twitter that have been saying, I returned my iPhone because of this, because I rely on this every day, and having it lock up one-seventh of the time is really annoying and embarrassing, because you're doing it in front of a ton of people in rush hour. Oh. So that is pretty much the follow-up I had. Um, Also, uh, if you follow us on Twitter, uh, you may have seen the fantastic photo of me in front of the show, the Subaru Forester mascot um, (laughs) hanging out in Japan. Uh, I just wanted to say that because I had a great time in Japan and I am... Whoa, whoa, whoa. so it, it it ain't the Subaru mascot. It's the Subaru Forester mascot. Yes. Really? There are two wow. Subaru Forester mascots. There's the chipmunk that I posted and there is also a rabbit that was not there the day that I was there because presumably people in giant mascot uniforms get heat stroke sometimes. And the entire time I was in Japan, it was 33 to 37 degrees Celsius except for one day, which was 28 degrees, and it was very painful, and yeah, I'm really glad to be back at a more reasonable temperature. Uh, reasonable temperature? We didn't have, we won't that talk too much about the temperature, but it was not that reasonable still. I think you didn't skip too much of the heat wave, it just like followed you and then also stayed here, so uh, but it's glad to have you back, and let's jump into my topic. So like I said in the opening, uh, during our time off, uh, I was able to read a book. And you know what? It is 
surprising for me to say that because it has been a while uh, since I was able to find time to read a book. I guess uh, during uh, my week off, uh, going into a chalet in the middle of the woods with no internet does help for that. But uh, let's not talk too much about that. So um, one of the book that is directly related to this topic, it's Objective CLIO's App Architecture Book. And I wanted, like, we've... Uh, I got lucky enough to get this book for uh, quote-unquote free because uh, we bought it as a training material at work and we've been having a lot of discussion because a lot of my colleagues started to read or enjoy the uh, training material because you can buy the book but you can also buy a bigger package that is the book and they also have kind of a video s- series a bit like what they do with their Swift Talks. So I decided to focus on the book first and before I talk about iOS app architecture, I would like to talk about what I like in the book and I don't dis- didn't dislike anything in the book. I think I'll start with the bad because the bad is one small thing is uh, at the beginning of the book, they are, good, they're, they are making a good introduction about introducing all of the uh, architectures that we'll, go, that we'll uh, look at tonight. And they're like, they also describe their methodology. So what they want to evaluate for each app architectures, uh, what they've decided to skip as app architectures, uh, why they're not like considering this or that trade-off. And they're doing a really good job in the first two or three chapters of the book, describing all of this as a reader. But after the last chapter, that is really the last architecture that they've demonstrated the book ends that like just there's no conclusion there's no nothing it's just like here's the last sub chapter about uh the t framework which we'll see in a bit and then it just stops so i was like oh that's nice but i would kind of maybe like to have a i would say a conclusion to the book like here's why and then like maybe like Maybe saying like, oh, if you want those trade-offs, uh, do like maybe go around these ARP architecture. If you want those trade to solve those trade-offs, maybe go use those ARP architecture. And that would be to me that my 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 only complaint about the book because the rest of it is quite interesting. One of the main things that makes it a good book for programmers is. Especially, it's hard to describe app architectures, and that's something I think we'll see a lot in when I start describing the architecture themselves, because they realize either with different technology that is not that is not like I would say Apple kosher. Let's put it this way. A good example of that will be reactive programming. Like I think in this book, they found the great example of an app that can be described in a book without it to without it being too lengthy, but also it not being like close enough to a real app so the example they've decided to use is a recording app so it's an audio recording app and of course in the app you can navigate inside a folder hierarchy and uh, so you can have subfolders and those folders have recordings so uh, in all of that it does show you a big a good picture of a big enough app while still be small concise having navigation having presentation having observation between your model and the views and being able to expose the typical architecture of an app without it being too complex. Uh, two other points that I really like is they have a good emphasis on testing and making sure that you can test and how should you test uh, your app if it's designed, if it's built in X architecture. And a topic that I've, I haven't heard for a while that is interesting is 
they put an emphasis on state restoration. Uh, iOS technology that when your app gets killed, uh, that was super useful in the first few OS versions because of the limited resources of memory and CPU power of the iPhone, where your apps will always get killed. And to fake that the app is not getting killed, but you're still like in progress in your flow or in the UI, uh, Apple has developed this state, state restoration technology and they're uh, putting a good emphasis on like whether this app architecture is good or bad at it or what i mean by good or bad is more like is it complex to do state restoration in your ui so in your state of your ui versus like another app architecture so it was um i would say i would say refreshing but interesting to see that topic uh being brought up uh, at the forefront because it is um feature of UI kit that I would say that is maybe a bit not neglected by Apple but I think neglected by third party uh developers. And you know what? It does include what we do at uh without incriminating too much my colleagues and myself at work, but it's not something we've been thinking about too much. And I think the main reason why is with the current uh, like level of performance we have on the iPads and the iPhones, it is rare that the OS will kill your app while your users may be going from one app to the other. Uh, so I think that's why people these days tend to maybe not think too much about state restoration and uh, having it on the forefront and also making it an important point to compare architectures between each other is was an interesting choice. And if I can add a little sub-point to that, because I have used state restoration in the past, I think for a lot of people, there's too much magic behind the scenes with regards to state restoration, that it's hard to trust it. Whereas if you write your own state restoration code yourself uh, without using UI kits built in support for it, you know exactly what it's doing and therefore it's easier to trust that it's doing the correct thing for your application. And I think that's probably why people are steering away from it in general. Either that or people are lazy, which is also very possible. Yeah, and depending, it's funny because depending on the architecture they were discussing, uh, for some of them, they kind of assume that, oh, it's kind of as easy as uh, the, it's as magic as the storyboard support or interface builder support, depending on which file format you use for those. But some of them is really even more magic than uh, typical standard Cocoa MVC, which we'll see in a bit. They've included a small chapter about networking and exchanging data from and back to a server and tonight i'll skip that uh, i think i really want to focus about the architecture themselves i know it might seem strange to ignore networking in this day and age but to me uh, in the book they're comparing like the network and uh, networking layer that is per uh, controller base or per view base and the one that is owned by the model and i understand why they're putting one against each other but the way the book was written about it and where i am at the level of development it feels to me that in most cases you should always do model own networking but i think we can have a whole episode on this these decision and how to properly build a networking layer on top of your model or on a bit below your controllers and your views and data synchronization. So I really want to leave that aside and really focus on the architecture themselves. Um, especially because, and, and I think they're making a good point that networking 
if I simplified it, it could be added to any of those app architectures without influencing the architecture themselves. So here it is that we start looking at each of the five architectures shown in this book. Yeah, let's go. Good. So we'll start with the first one that if you're developing Mac or iOS app, you should know about and hopefully be familiar about uh, MVC, Model View Controller. But before we start, I think uh, that's one point I forgot to mention is all, all of these app architectures, yes, we'll be talking about them on iOS, but I do think that a lot of them could be applied to different technologies or other languages. And the reason why is there are all of these app architectures are a solution, are trying to solve this basic problem. In an application, whether it's mobile, web, whatever, you all usually have three things. You have a model, you want to show that model in views, and then you have notification. And what I mean by notification or actions is the user changed something that changed the model. Like there's a user interaction that will trigger a change in the model. And there's either an update from the model or a network event that would then change the model and then needs to be reflected in the views. And this cycle between going from the model to the view and then from the view to the model is what consists of an app architecture. And you'll see that the different solution that even Apple came up with, the like Apple came up with one, which is the first one we'll see, MVC, but all of the other ones that is shown in the book and even the one ignored in this book are all based on this base of what an app is. It's all of the interaction between the model and the view and how should we build that to make a maintainable app. And the definition of maintainable varies from one developer team to another, whether you're one, 10, 20 people. So now let's jump into MVC. Um, MVC stands for Model View Controller. And the gist of it in this scenario, if we take our typical model and view approach is in the between you have a controller and a controller really enter, like is the, I would say that in this case, like the controller here is really to orchestrate all of the act, UI action that needs to go change the model and all of the, all of the updates from the model that need to be shown on views the controller is doing all of that. And this app architecture is the basis of the Coco technology. If you look at all of the way you should build an app that is proposed by Apple, all of this reflects MVC. The UI kit, app kit has been built on top of, has been built based on developing apps where you build a model, we provide the views. You can configure the views. You have state in the views, whether a button is selected or title and the button is different or a navigation stack is at X element in the stack. All of that is controlled by Apple uh, with their own components. And then you have, you write your own controller and your own model to make sure that all of this becomes an app. If you real, what you can realize quite quickly is it's, it's quite I, would, I wouldn't say simple, but it's quite easy. I think that will be the best word is it's quite easy to isolate the model. So you have a model. It's easy to take shortcuts where your model have UI stuff on it, but it is quite easy to draw the line in the sand. Say model only does model view. So let's say here we took this example of the recording app. The model should just be the recordings uh, and the metadata attached to it. And we have it in a store uh, so it can communicate when there's changes. And then... On the complete other side, we have the views where all of the views are defined by the, by the framework UI kit. 
Uh, so I know if we if we if we take the example where I want to show the progress of my uh, playing a recording. So you use a label, all of the interaction to make sure that this label on on my view that is my play screen make sure to stay updated. All of this needs to happen in the controller. So the controller needs to know where to get the model, which model should we get. Then every time we get that model, we need to update this label and apply a transformation because maybe we store the time in, I don't know, a number and we want to it, we want it to be properly formatted. So all of these transformation, all of these, uh, all of these interaction, all of this coordination happens in the controller. And one of the main issues we run when you use MVC is its other nickname by being called MVC is massive view controllers. Because the controller has so much to do, so needs so much to do, it's easy to put everything in that single class. Uh, I think I've seen example and giving a lot of good example about uh, open source project. But if I give an example that I've seen in the past, uh, let's say you have a view that contains a table. So first step you need to do is I need to provide data to that table. I also need to provide the I need to provide configuration to say like once you receive the data, here's how you should take this data and have a cell and all of this configuration. So even just with that, we have a view that needs to tell the system how to create tables and then it needs to know where to get that data. And it could become quite easy to have, like the name suggests, massive view controllers where you have like a hundred and hundred lines of code. That is a lot of dependencies between those two worlds, between the model and the view. I, I do want to add that Apple is sort of part of the problem with this issue, I guess, because a, lo a lot of the example code that is given for table views and all that stuff dumps it directly into the controller. And then people see that as an example of like best practices. And then they go ahead and do that in their application. And like it gets out of hand pretty quickly if you just do what Apple teaches you, whereas you sort of have to use your brain a little to see how you can split out those various parts into separate classes to keep complexity low in your controller. Oh, exactly. And related to that, to the other common problem in uh, the MVC approach is because the controller has to handle so much, there's also this uh, problem where uh, the observer pattern will fail. And what we mean by that is at some point, when the model changes, you need to make sure that the view is updated. And when the view needs to change the model, we need to make sure that the model gets updated. And because there's no strict rules part of the MVC architecture, it is easy to, once once the view loads, to get it from the model. And it's also easy to then forget what happens when I get new updates from the model. Do, do they get pushed to the view? Do I ignore them? Because in MVC, there's no, there's different methods to solve this problem, but there's no like, there's no limitation of a framework that forces you to solve that problem, and that can cause like super weird bugs where you show the view and then nothing happens after the view is shown. So it gets a, uh, it gets the model in the state before uh, a view is shown, and then because you did a small mistakes or just because you don't have an observer an observer making sure that everything this changes it gets updated or you have one logic to read the value and then one logic that is completely different when you get an update while uh, the view is on screen 
So by taking those two major issues with MVC, what I like quite a lot in uh, the book is those two major problems is you will encounter them on a small, like it, it will be easy to encounter them if you use MVC. And it is sadly hard, it's sadly simple to fall into those patterns. Uh, like Nick mentioned, especially with the, the massive view controllers, a lot of the examples given by Apple, because they're small examples just to show you how to use the APIs, uh, most cases, uh, sometimes the app architecture is not really great even it's they are not a good example of a good mvc app and the objective c.io book provides solutions to those problems and what made me laugh so much is all of the proposed solution are solution that i'm familiar with because throughout the years already it's solution that other people suggested and also it is solution when you talk to some apple engineers like yes to do the proper mvc app you should do this and we'll start with the first example that is uh i think we can have a good example from uh apple's previous engineer uh, i was it was uh app evangelist if i recall clean mr dave delong and he, after he left apple uh, in the last year he started to write a lot of documentation about what is a proper mvc app and one of his first suggestions it is also in the book, and it's also uh, uh, something we start to do even more at work, and, and sometimes even I uh, start to experiment with uh, child view controllers in some of my small project, side projects. Is exactly that child view controllers because in the Cocoa technology, you can have like you can have like view controllers that are just for specific portion of your whole screen and have a somewhat and sometimes it's not uh, super uh, convenient and super uh, easy to understand but you, you can imbrick those views inside each other and make sure that all of the system knows about them you can define one small view controller that only affects one part of the UI so I know my example is quite simple. If we take again the uh, player control, uh, the player view of our recording app, we could have a small section of the view that is just for uh, showing the progress, because we know that getting it in a, getting it from our model, uh, a model uh, data model is super is super. It's uh, like the, all of the play, not the playback, but the, the current status of the playback is in one object so we define one view controller and that controls one view inside of a bigger view that is for a label on the left saying like oh where we are in the playback time and then what's the complete time and we have a nice progress bar and we could have a different different view just below it that is controlled by somebody else that is to play pause this I know it sounds a bit overkill just for my small views, but imagine where you have like bigger views, you have lists, you have lots of text fields because it's maybe more of a form that you're trying to do, or you have buttons that do completely different interaction. By having all of this, like all of this mandate in one class, that is the controller that it should like get this model there and that that model there by simplifying, simplifying this and using the UI kit advantage for you you can end up with smaller view controllers that are a easier to write and fix and b easier to test to and even see if they are isolated a lot they could be even reused because you can find the same patterns in your app where this uh, view needs to be reused everywhere and then you have one way to be for it to be controlled 
Yeah, I want to add two things on this. Uh, first of all, like having uh, sub view controllers was something that Tweety back in the day was very popular for doing. I believe Tweety 2 in particular on iOS. Um, one of the ways that the complexity was kept pretty low on that project because it did so much and it was one of the most quote desktop class applications on iOS at the time is that uh, Lauren Brichter was very careful about splitting every little chunk he could into its own little sub view controller. Uh, the second thing I is more of a question uh, because I've been out of the iOS development scene for quite a while now. So maybe things have changed. Um, I mean, back in the day when we used to do this stuff, we didn't actually use subclasses of UI view controller. We just subclassed an as object and made our own like generic controllers instead. Nowadays, I know there is like view controller containment and all of that stuff has, is the best practice to just go with that stuff and make it full fledged UI view controllers or do people just use generic objects instead? No, I would say they use that technology. And I think that's what, at least that's what we've been using. And all of the examples where they show how to simplify, uh, uh, like a, a spaghetti code MVC, what I like, I like to call them, or even those massive view controllers is really to, uh, use, uh, the Apple provided view controller containment. Uh, because I, I know at first, I think I forgot if it were in iOS four or five that that concept of view controller containment were introduced I think, I think containment is five or six yeah and i think it was introduced in five and then broken up until six and now since six is around it's good to be used and you shouldn't use those kind of ns object based controllers because you'll be missing all of the all of the view lifecycle events and that's what's important that's what apple has kind of fixed there is you don't have to have a lot of boilerplate code to simulate or to propagate from your kind of, let's call it your master view controller for that view and propagate all of the view cycle events, making sure that your fake controllers have it. And I think that's at that time, Tweety might have to add to do that. Yeah, that's quite possible. But now with Apple's framework, uh, it, do, it does that for you automatically. Cool. The next point to solve some of the problems um, a next solution to a next strategy to solve some of the problem about either massive controllers or the patterns of failures is extracting objects. And what we mean by that is, like we described in one of the example where we have massive view controllers, where we have a table and then we have a player at the bottom. To get data sent to a table, there's a lot of objects, and those objects can exist on their own. A good example of that and a good candidate of that is a data source. So uh, a table view in iOS needs to have a data source. And usually, and like Nick mentioned, those data sources are always implemented in the view controller class. In a simplified way, the, yes, a table needs to know where to get its data, but the controller shouldn't do that. It should say like, I will tell you, like, I will configure yourself to go get this data from this object. And this object's job is really to get the data for you. So that's where the the more you simplify with child controllers and the more you extract to have, make sure that you have like one object that does one thing for the controller and the views it's trying to attach from the model, then you end up that the controller is only orchestrating between the model and then the view. And then there's places and there are other, other objects where they do that real job for you. And by being isolated, 
in their own space they focus on that one thing and it makes it for a easier to find oh hopefully easier to find bugs because this class only does one thing and one thing only and also for testing purposes if a class does less there's less to test so it's easier to test you and i would say that in my pre like in my experience extracting those subjects having like i have a formatter that is like yes my view controller says go give me the format for like here's the string give me the format and then i assign it to the view but i shouldn't know about the format somebody should be should do that for me and also be tested to make sure that they do that correctly for the view controller that orchestra those different events and that we've been successful we've been we've moved away from some big view controllers that we've coded just for Sometimes for the sake of being of uh, trying to deliver something faster, like we take shortcut by saying, "Oh, yeah, we'll make it work there," and by by centralizing some of that logic uh, in different objects, we made sure that it could be reused in different part of the app and not just being specified in each controller, and also uh, be better better tested. Uh, last but not least, before we move uh, away for MAVC, the other one is. The simplifying the view configuration code and this point is really to say like if you can configure a view and then let it let it be uh the better it is for you because configuration is um you configure and let it be is way easier than just making sure you need to making sure managing it all the time during the the evolution of your app and during the state evolution of your app while the app is running and i think this point is kind of the linking point with a lot of those different app architectures because the more we will move from the other the more we'll move away from mvc and you'll see the book has a specific order so this this it starts with mvc and then moves to another one and the one up to the fifth one and the more you move you, you go you read through the book the more you go away from traditional mvc and that you go in different patterns and different like I would call them left field ideas, like thinking outside of the box and like what can we learn from other maybe technological stack that could be applied to iOS app architecture and development. Before we move to the next architecture, do you have any other comments about MVC? No. <laughs> okay. Um, you'll realize that I've been a bit negative about MVC and it's not because it's a bad architecture. The main reason why we tend to be a bit negative about MVC, it's because it's the standard approach of app development and there's a lot of issues that can go wrong uh, so that's why i wanted to focus to those because i've seen like with the solution proposed in this book and by other solutions that are also proposed in the other app architecture you can keep an app more or less mvc like coco standard coco mvc but building documentation building a culture in your team to make sure that you know what? We want small controllers. And what does it entail to do small controllers? But we need extracting objects. We need to have data source objects. We might have to have delegate objects. We might have coordinators. And I'm uh, teasing a bit about this future stuff, but we might uh, also have like context to make sure that initializing a view controller is simpler. And there's a lot of that can be passed at initialization time. So a lot of what we see for the, the next few app architecture can be reapplied on top of a typical MVC app because it might solve a problem that is only specific of part of your app. You don't need, and that's what I like about this book is they're really upfront about that. It's like, you don't need to have, to write your whole app to be MVVM or MVC or the 
uh, to be uh, from the uh, the help architecture you could just use that in a part of your app if it makes sense because it solves those trade-offs yeah i i do i did actually remember the thing i did want to say about mbc which is you might sometimes find yourself a little strong-armed into using uh mvc because increasingly apple technologies like we mentioned siri shortcuts on the wbc episode it assumes that it's going to get the context of your application from the visible view controller and stuff like that and to a certain degree i think in all of these cases you're still going to have a ui view controller somewhere because like so much of the iphone app world assumes it exists but you're going to be building on top of it and sort of ignoring a lot of the controller specific stuff if i understand correctly oh yeah totally totally uh you you can find it but yeah and the other thing is yeah it's easy to be negative about mvc and the reason is like we both of us spend our day jobs working in mvc and therefore we know it very well and we know very much what the limits of what it can and can't do are and i think there are probably a bunch of negative things about the other app architectures too, and some of them may be written in the book. But if we were working in those architectures day in and day out, we would also have probably a lot of gripes about those architectures as well. Oh, totally. And we'll see in some of the last few app architectures that sometimes because they move away, uh, so much away from the typical MVC that UIKit is based on that you need to put some weeks to it to make sure that let's say that you want to know when the change of the views the state of a view changes that it gets communicated bad even if you want to have a have a pipeline for that and i'm just spoiling a bit some of the topics but you're right that we need to massage ui kit sometimes if we want to move away when it's maybe it's just simpler to say you know what i don't need to massage ui kit but I'll make sure that I massage my coworkers, if you see what I mean. Like, I make sure that we have those standards. We should do that. And in PRs, if I see that you have, like, a, a thousand lines view controller, I'll just, like, decline it and explain you what you could have done to make it simpler and uh, extract objects and making sure that uh, the view controller is really orchestrating and not doing too much job at the same time. Cool. To continue on this idea of orchestration, uh, we'll move to MVVM, which stands for modal view. So we have still those two contexts where on one side we have the modal, the data model, and then on the other side we have complete view. But in between, to help the view controller relieve, to relieve the view controller of certain functionality, we create a new layer that is called the view model. And in this book, they also add the, the plus C, the coordinator, but I don't want to attack a coordinator just yet because that's one of the concepts that they attach to MVVM because it made sense to explain it in this way. But personally, it's a concept we do use attached to MVC because coordinators by themselves, or you could have also, have so, I'll also read some documents calling them flow controllers. They have usefulness independent of your app architectures. So, if we take our example of, again, of the uh, play status on the recording apps or in the podcast apps or even in the app piezo that I'm looking at right now, where we have a recording and we have time. Like I said, we might not store uh, the time directly uh, into a times or maybe on a time object, or maybe we are depending on the way we store it. But we might want the time to be formatted or, yeah, we might want to have the time formatted. So the job of the view model is making sure that 
when the controller is asking for data, the only thing it should do is just put it in the label. There's no transformation. Transformation is already done. Like it know, like the view model knows where to get the data and then knows how to transform it and expose it publicly for somebody to consume it. This architecture relies a lot on bindings and especially on reactive programming because reactive programming is, uh, can do those bindings quite easily for you. And while I like about this book, if we go back about the good points is using a concrete app examples made me learn more about different programming concepts like reactive programming compared to some of the demos you could download from the, uh, from the people or from the open source project of these concepts to help you understand those concepts. So I, like, there's not only a, a lot you can learn about the app architectures if you download their code, uh, snippets and code examples for the app itself because they have complete demolition of their recording app. It could also a good teaching tool of some of these different frameworks like RxSwift to learn about these. So, um, why does MVVM relies heavily on observer-based programming like uh, RxWeb or reactive programming? Because if you have the view model, the view it becomes easy to just use those semantics of those types of programming and just do attach. I think I would say that now that I think of it, that MVVM might be an app architecture that would have been more associated to the Mac than iOS. Because on the Mac, we have Cocoa bindings that are, I would say, quote unquote, easier to use than the KVO APIs we have on iOS. And it's really quote unquote, because I've heard really bad news about it. But we have <laughs> ways to attach the model to the view directly. And that's a, a lot what, uh, it's mainly what the reactive programming does. So it exposes observable and also pipelines of signals where the data transformation happens and I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm still obviously learning about reactive programming it's something I'm still I would say not uncomfortable but not familiar enough that I couldn't explain but what I liked about book two is even the 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 main example they gave it to you in reactive programming they give you a small summary of what reactive programming is the observable and then all of all of the signals, uh, like not nature and making sure to making you understand that the gist of it is you want to say my view model exposes a, let's say we have a recording. So we have the model that is a recording and then we have a, a, a view model maybe named currently playing recording and the property on it wouldn't be like timestamp creation date. It would be maybe it would be formatted date like current form formatted timestamp because what it exposed or even even more simpler it will be like current play progress labeled text because it, it is really a clear interface as also a clear interface that you can better test to make sure that the transformation that goes from your model just before it is assigned to your view it is well contained into one object on top of that they also give you examples of mvvm in the book and that's what i love they're like you know what mvvm is an app architecture that is well suited with reactive programming and we do think as the author of those books and that um, authoring application and creating an architecture in mvvm is simpler when you use reactive programming but since 
not everybody is familiar with it. You, we can show you uh, without some specificity of, I think uh, they were using, like I said, RX Swift. So we're just like, and then they also go down to the typical iOS KVO stuff. When they can give you how to create your view model so it can KVOable and to make sure that you can have more, like I said, typical iOS solution, a typical Apple uh, Cocoa solution without using a third party library. So this addition of really giving you what, how we think MVVM should be built, it does include the caveat of reactive programming where it solves making sure that you don't have uh, observer pattern failures because in most cases in reactive programming, when you bind a data to a view, the first time it gets bind, it will do the first. So it will at first do the first assignment and then it will make sure that every time there's updates, it, it is always attached to the right place. And that's really nice because it solved one of the big other issues with MVC. But the main downsides of it is it creates a lot of complexity. It's it's a it creates a burden. You want to learn. You don't you are unfamiliar with it. You might be writing iOS apps for the last ten years, but if you start if you go look at the product, it's this way. You have a the learning curve is steeper when those projects included, and there are ways to do it without those projects, but. It might end up that the benefits are downplayed because the code become complex just because those libraries have enough, a lot of good functionalities. Attached to that, that topic of MVVM, there's the plus C that we're talking about, the plus coordinator. And the job of a coordinator is really to manage, and that's in, in our app at work, we call it flow coordinator, flow controllers is really to make, to make it clear that what they control is not a view, it's really the flow between the views. So they are really, a good example of that is you will have a coordinator that is coordinating your navigation. So you get the event, um, you get the event that we should move from like view A to view B. In standard Cocoa MVC, view A needs to know that when you press the button, move to next view, it should instantiate view B with its controller and everything where a coordinator will take care of this. You isolate all of the coordination between the presentation of views and the transition in one place to make it simpler, not to pollute again the view controllers. They should just care about controlling the view in a way, not controlling or making sure that other views and other controllers are presented on screen. Did they mention anything about integrating with storyboards at all? Uh, Yes, because they're typically, Typical MVC solution uses storyboards. And when you use storyboards, uh, move, adding a controller that controls all of this might become a bit tedious. But uh, the way they show it is the controller will do the instantiation off of the storyboard for you. So you, you wouldn't use, you wouldn't use the storyboard to create your navigation from one screen to one screen, where I think this is where the storyboards shine as a technology. Yeah. To me, it felt that the implementation they were showing is more what we do at work. Uh, and what I've been doing a lot in my iOS project is we just use either code to create your hierarchy or use interface builder uh, with the zip files where you only define one view. So for those, you can do proper manual instantiation, making sure that uh, and not rely on this dynamic navigation and those uh, what, what Apple calls segues from one view to the other where you get past the next contro- view controller that is already instantiated, but so now you need to configure it and then you end up with a lot of 
optional properties on it that you know they are really like they're they're not past in situation but you need to make sure that they're set in so it creates a lot of like boilerplate code and dynamic code that is hard to manage and i do think that coordinator will solve this issue but forces you to maybe not use stability rewards to their full potential fair enough uh and that's mainly it for mvvm to me mvvm is a concept that when you need to do a lot of transformation on top of your data it comes uh, even if you don't have the bindings approach of reactive programming uh it becomes way easier and way easier to think about the code if you have a place where all of this kind of what they call view model all the data transformation happens is in one place and by making it in one place you can instantiate a view model with the data and then do interface testing so you pass the data and say okay is the label properly formatted yes uh, is that and that so you end up with interface testing of all of the properties you want to show without having to make sure that you have a view hierarchy properly set up and attach those and test the label text property making sure that it's also attached you can have a test that it's just making sure when i have my view models created and this property is attached to that label but you don't need to care about what the what is the value in the label because you've already tested that the output of your view model is correct. So it becomes more of a typical, I inputted this in the view model, it mashes it up, and then it gives me this output, which in general, those types of tests are easy and to te- are easy to write, easy to think about, uh, and also the simplest test that exists. You, I give you this input, you do that, you give me this output. I forgot if you had any experience with MVVM. I did, but in a web environment. So it's very different because, I mean, like, you're not really interacting with the data in real time. Like, you're always making requests that are basically one-sided data movement because you're talking to the server. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. I was reminded while reading the book because at the beginning beginning of the book, one of the chapters is really they... um, they go through the bit of the history of those architecture. And I was reminded that that architecture was kind of, that the concept of it was created by Microsoft 40X. Uh, what's the UI protocol, the UI framework? Is, isn't it the, the XAP or something like that? I know it. Oh, God. There are so many Windows I UI frameworks so that have failed that I don't remember. The only acronym I remember is XAML, the XAML. Right, that it is which used is part of WPF. A WPF, that's exactly what I was thinking about. So uh, I was like, oh. And WPF, if I recall correctly, was not the web development framework first. It was really for desktop Windows application. WPF is the desktop framework that launched with Windows Vista. Yeah, yeah, Since yeah. then, they have made WinRT with Windows 8 <laughs> and UWP on Windows 10. And the weird thing about both of those, because I was looking at uh, Windows native app development recently, is that they don't seem to have any preference for app architecture, which is freeing in one way because you can write your apps however you'd like. However, it makes no sense if you are starting a new Windows app because now you have to be, well, I, which architecture do I want to use? Yeah, and this reminds me of uh, one that was saying that it was with uh, this uh, new UI framework for Windows Vista. They were saying that the uh, 
UI framework add bindings already in place. So you would have this XAML uh, language to have a descriptive way to describe your UI. And in by describing, uh, by using this descriptive language, you can also already bind like this label goes to that model property already. And that's why it came from. You could already bind it to your view model uh, in a descriptive manner. True. However, you could also do that in Windows forms and it wasn't great. So I'm pretty sure most hmm. people were still relying on uh, reactive extensions anyway. Huh. Good to know. Okay. Now we're moving in this another section of books where, um, the, the arc, the uh, architecture described there are more, uh, are created by the author. So some of them, I think they're like, uh, the, the next one we're looking at it is an extension on MVC called MVC plus VS for model view controller plus view state. Uh, this one was been developed by one of the author, Matt Gallagher, that you might have known from, uh, Coco with Love. Yes, Coco with Love. And the next one also that we'll be looking after that one is also uh, developed by M. Uh, but now we're like MVC plus VS is on the limit in my opinion, where we're still MVC, as the name suggests, of course, but now we're like really like going left side, like on the left field, like we're thinking outside of the box, what we can learn from different uh, other technologies. And in this case, the logic behind MVC plus uh, MVC plus VS is, like I described uh, at the beginning, an app is composed of the data model and then the views. But like we saw with MVC and MVVM, there's state in the view. Whether it's like, is the button enabled, disabled, pressed on, uh, where am I in the navigation stack? And all of this state is with UIKit, it is stored in those views themselves. They really like, it is really stored at the views, on the view side and not in the model side. So what MVC plus VS do is it extends the layer that is called the model, but internally the model is separated in two categories. What I've been calling since the beginning of this episode, the data model. So what you will accept for in our case, uh, the recordings, what they call in the book, the document model, and then the view state model. So the main benefit of this is the viewed state becomes, becomes actionable like any models, any data models. A, a simplistic way of saying it is you could do the same like CRUD actions on the view state, the same way you can do that on data model. But the, the, the added benefits, the benefit is, is you create an app that all of its action is unidirection. So there's a, what happens is you have a user actions that goes through the controller, then modifies the model, whether it modifies a data model or the view state model. It modifies the model. And by this modification of model, you then create new, you create new views and then you, you change, you get past to the controller and then you change the control. The controller will change the view. So all of this is really, really, like, if you see it, it's really downfall. It really, if you were to have an action at the top and then goes down and then creates something new. Uh, another uh, added benefits of having the view state stored the same way you have a model is for testing purposes. There's a lot of stuff that uh, becomes easy to do. So you, not for testing purposes, for uh, start restoration purposes, since your view state, the way the UI is shown right now on screen is not stored in that label, in that other view, in that other view where 
the complexity and also the magic when you use storyboards of state restoration is you need to go to each you and tell them what's your current state what's your current state what's your current state what's your current state and then save it on disk and then when the app restarts you reapply that state when the state of each view is is in a data store you can just say save the data store on disk when the os asks you and then you can restore it the same way by saying restore the view state this way uh, of course using that data store uh, for the view state it you need to build a, a tiny layer um, that is to really say, okay, transform the view state into the views directly. And in MVC plus VS, it is quite manual. So the stata needs to go through the controller and the controller, the same way that the controller in MV, standard MVC acts on the model. Now it acts, out, it acts on the view state and have maybe a couple of bindings from MVVM to make sure that once the view state changes, that those changes are reflected on the views directly. The benefits also for testing by having a view state as a model, there's two things is every time you want to debug a view, if there's a bug in a view, you really need to look at the way the data, the, the view state is stored and what's stored in it because you can create like those views are really on disk all the time, figuratively. Like the state is always described. So if there's a bug in the UI, it's not because you might have forgotten to put the text label there. It's really because you forgot to describe my view should be in this state. And then becomes more like of a data bug and less than that. Another benefit is because you can track those view state changes because they're in a store, you can create the app timeline when you when the user's like okay i do this and i do that and i do that and i do that and then i encounter this bug it becomes a bit easier to say oh when the user does action a you go from state a to state b and then from state b to state c and then from state c to state e when i was supposed to go to state d because you can trace this timeline and then debug all the actions by just saving each step the user does so uh, it's a lot of advantages, but you need to think a bit differently about how you should uh, build the view state and how you should store it and not use the uh, UI kit way of doing so, which in this case, you like this is one of the examples where you would encounter limitation of UI kit. Because like I was saying, since the actions and data events are flowing in one direction, when the user presses the play button, in a standard VC, then you have an action that does play, and then this action will directly talk to the player controller and say play. But not in MVC plus VS. You need to talk to the controller and then talk to the view state. and say, oh, I press play. I want to play this recording. And then the state will change in the store. And what's changing the view is not the action of the user. It's really the store saying to the view again, saying, hey, I'm changing state because something happened. So now this one way becomes, I would say not simpler to test, but more straightforward to test because to make sure that the play button goes in the right state, you just need to make sure that am I sending the right state to it and not am I making sure that when I press this button, it affects this other view. And this what and this way you, this is where you have this uh, omnidirectional flow of data for both the data model and, and the view state model. Like I said, uh, while starting to talk about uh, this app architecture, it, it is a 
it is a different way of thinking about it but the way it is it, it to me it, it is one of the in the three main ones it's one of the one where it seems easy to attach just on mvc just for maybe a specific portion of the app uh because you could create a, like just for a couple of view controllers or just like a specific workflow you have a small view state control a view state store and do that for that portion maybe try to play with it and evolve and see if you can put more of your app in it attached to that uh architecture demo in the boat they also uh describe that because you want to start your views in they're also the, they're also looking at when you want to start your views from the view state, you really need to pass a lot of configuration at initialization time. And that's where they also look at what they call context uh, to make sure that you provide all of the data to your view and view controllers. Uh, in the past, you might, or in MVC, you might rely on singleton on stuff like that. And that's what they talk about. They're talking about context to, to help you pass information in a unidirectional manner. Uh, if you think about it, if you store an, like a global object, you might have like two-way direction communication for it. But by making sure that everything is set at initialization time, you enforce this unidirection pattern. And that's mainly what they say for context. It's, it's an object that contains more information for you uh, at initialization time. And to me, that's also something that could be applied to standard MVC making sure that you have more information when your view controller is initialized and not rely on global object on somebody sharing use this data and you can have uh they call it context in the boot but another name i've seen is the providers provider pattern where you have different provide level of providers so you might have a more general like app level provider that is providing you more formatters uh, like a way to access the user defaults uh general stuff and then you have different level of providers the more you go specific in the app so you might have the app level provider and then oh i'm logged in so i have more i have more access to shared data and this provider can provide it to you in a in a safer manner in a way where you don't rely on like oh i need to go talk to the app delegate or like and then creating this like links between views or between part of your app that doesn't make sense to me, this sounds like a bit of a hybrid of Redux, which we've talked about on a past episode, and uh, Angular 2 providers, basically. I mean, like, a, they use the same word, which kind of makes sense. The part where I sort of, I cringe a bit is when you're talking about persisting the view state. I think that is a bad idea because, I, like, it, well, go ahead. I just want to make it clear that the two parts where they really talk about persisting is really because of state restoration and maybe because of debugging purposes. So they don't suggest that to do that throughout your life, the the life of your app, so when it runs, but it it is useful for those two things. But it might mean, like I was explaining that, that's why I want to clarify, you might mean that, oh, but since my user might have bugs, I want to debug all their bugs, I like store it all the time, right? That part is, that, that is the kind of, I do agree with you that it's a bit of the cringe, the, the, maybe the danger is all about having a store of the view state because you might make those decisions that are not ideal. Well, it, it, it's not just that, but it's also like, if you restore the view state from your persisted version all the time, you have this sort of weird thing where if you had a bug which got saved into the view state, now you keep restoring that bug 
into the UI. Whereas if you're keeping like if what you're keeping on file for state restoration is I am looking at this recipe ID and the scroll position is this far um, versus I'm going to store a lot more information of what the exact state of this view is. There's a lot more potential for bugs in your restoration code. And let's say if you're storing it in a database or whatever, like you have weird migrations and then the data doesn't is mismatched and then your restoration code crashes. I mean, like there's a lot of dangerous stuff where if you keep your what you persist to disk very simple and basic, there's a lot less potential for your state restoration code to explode and or propagate bugs throughout various runs of your application. Oh, I like that mention of like, like what you just described in a way is you need to think about two models, not one. And thinking about one model to save is already complex enough. And that's, I think, I think to me, it's, you're right. It's one of the maybe downsides if you were to store it, but the way it is being described in most cases, it is really always in memory, except when you do state restoration. And that's where it may cause issue. But at the same time, now those issues are centralized in one store and not in each of the views. Because if you think about it in standard NVC, you'll ask each view, give me a state, give me a state, give me a state, and then I store it on disk. Uh, so by being centralized, it might affect more views. Uh, it might affect more views that shouldn't be affected because the view state is centralized. In the inverse, uh, the bug might just be replicated for each view if it were just in standard uh, MVC. And all of these views might have the same bug where they are uh, storing invalid state and then they try to get restored and it doesn't work. In their examples, do they use one view state for the entire app or do they use it per controller? Yes, so they have different view state per controller or per context so they, they have like the navigation state they might have the player state uh the recordings view don't have any they didn't want to save that state because like you're recording the file but if the app crashes like it crashes you might have yeah. an, a corrupted recording so you might have to restart uh but they all, all they all go back together in the same store so the store is shared between all the view controllers but each view controllers have their own state stored in it okay I, i'm trying to see like how this relates to Redux in my head, I'm like, eh. yeah, and I, you know what, and I think, and that's why I'm, I'm be combining combining the two next one. There's two reasons because those two ones feels to me that they are the most left field. So even after reading the book and rereading some of those para <laughs> chapters, I still have. That's why now I'm at the step, and that's the sad part of being busy is I didn't have the time to look at the code except the code included in the book for those chapters. But my next step to get my head wrapped around those ideas is to like just look at their uh, the code examples and even look at the videos because a uh, small tangent of the videos is they're looking at the app, uh, app architectures again, like in the book, but they're also doing live demos of adding new functionalities in each of these app architectures. And I think what they're doing is they want to do kind of a like Apple music style or, or overcast style where they have a mini player that then if you tap on it, it opens the big player in full screen. So they have kind of two view controllers that share some document state or even view states that need to be shared. So there's different ways to uh, do the same, to do this exact solve this exact issue in all of these architectures. 
And yeah, and mainly, like, like I said, uh, the T, so the, the ELM architecture and the MAVB, uh, so modal adapters, U-binders, to me, they kind of sound more or less the same, just on different labels. So MAVB was also developed by Matt Gallagher, and it is really, you have the view, you have the model, and in between you have an adapter, so the modal adapter that adapts the model, and then you have view binders. So first of all, this app architecture starts with the need to have a framework where you can describe declaratively your view hierarchy. So you create your view hierarchy using a declarative language. Uh, in this book, they're using the CWL view framework. Uh, I've never heard of it, but when Me looking neither. at the example, I was like, the syntax sounds familiar. Maybe it's because I've seen it in another declarative language. But more or less to say is, when you create, it also has kind of view state that is somewhat stored and it, it uses a lot of the reactive programming like MVVM to bind the data that you pass to the declarative, like the declarative language that then gets bind to the views. Uh, but more or less what I'm right now grasping for this one is you create the views in a declarative language. So you don't use UIKit directly. The framework will do that for you. And then using this declarative declaration, they, those get binds to your data and then your transformer and like you even if we were using an MVVM language, those get bind to those, uh, the to the view model. So I'm still trying to learn about a, a MAVB. So that's why I don't want to talk too much about it because that's the one I still didn't add a good grasp on it. If I were to compare to the Elm architecture, that is a, a type of architecture that comes from the web. But right now, the authors of the book realized that there was no concrete implementation of that framework in Swift or uh, maybe in Objective-C, but uh, they, they mentioned only in Swift. So uh, Chris Edioff, that is one of the authors of the book, created a Swift implementation of the T framework. And why is it important to have uh, this framework in the T Uh architecture that's a bit redundant but the reason why is because it creates a full abstraction of the view hierarchy you're never talking to the view hierarchy and i think that's where that's why i'm a bit familiar with this because i think it relates a bit like react react is a bit like that where you you talk to a virtual view hierarchy that gets then converted into the real hierarchy and this is where that this virtual view hierarchy is a bit like a view state where you just describe the view and it gets updated and then the framework itself will do the diff between those. So imagine you have like, oh, I have a table view with three elements. So I have one, two, and three. And then I go from uh, to a view controller that, uh, to a table view that has one and three. Then the framework knows how to do the diffing between those two view states and then creates the animation for you. And isn't isn't it that reactive React that does that on the web? Yeah. Because I know they mention it in the book. If you use React plus Redux, you basically get Elm architecture without using Elm. Uh, it's if you prefer JavaScript for some sick reason, uh, you can use <laughs> React plus Redux and get the Elm architecture basically working in JavaScript. Um, the thing about React is React is really more about rendering the views, and it doesn't really care how your data store works as long as it gets passed to the component. Uh, which is why there are different data store options that are not uh, Redux that actually do funkier stuff. 
But in the examples that we've mostly described on the show before, we were talking about Redux because it was the one that was interesting me and it was directly inspired by the Elm architecture. So it is very close to it. Yeah. And, and to, to me, what's uh, quite interesting in T is really that you don't have to deal with the specificity. Uh, that's the weird part still. It's like you don't have to deal with the specificity of UI kit because the abstraction on it is really like, what do you do on a table? You delete stuff, you select stuff. So you don't need really to care that we implement this delegate. We don't, we just expose a way to say, I'll call you when I select something and I'll return you with the data. And it uses a bit of like, of like functional programming to, to say the least, it, because a lot of it is really struck and enum, but it doesn't use too much of reactive programming. And it use it, it is, this abstraction. It, it seems interesting. That's a still, I'm still trying to understand it. Uh, like it uses a lot of like really sending messages to the view state and then the view state gets transformed into this real view hierarchy. Uh, there's still of the same concept of within VC plus VS where there's kind of this unidirection of events where they just go from top to bottom if we were to draw them. Uh, but, those two are, I would call them funky. Let's put it this way. Like, they're interesting. They're, I think, the best way to put it and, uh, uh, is really to, not to exercise your brain, but to kind of force you to think about differently and what do you like about them? How could you try to use them? Uh, maybe not in real code, but just in a proof of concept or just in, in a side project, just to familiarize yourself and see why are people using those? Like, what's, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? What are they understanding? What what they feel interested by it? And of course, uh, and I don't want to transform it into like people from the other technologies coming to iOS discussion, but I feel at some point, at some point, when that happens, there's a lot of like us, us, like us versus them. But I do feel that in those technologies, by better understanding those different technologies that could be valuable for certain developers. It makes you think about your current assumption about the way you build apps. And that's what I like that. Like, like I'm not afraid to say I don't understand them that much. I'm, I want to learn more because I want to confirm that what I like about MVC and like what I like about the coordinators that we've seen and what I'm eager to maybe see if I can have kind of a view state store in some of my apps to get some of the benefits of having view state managed as a model and less about just like each view have their own state to see if there's benefits and what could be the benefit that I'm unsure. And then maybe push it a bit to the extreme where we have Elm everywhere. Who knows? But at least it's making me think about these. So unless you have any more comments about it, I'm sure what I would like to do is maybe in a follow-up episode, come back to those when I have a better understanding of them. But uh, to me, those two are really at the end of the spectrum in this book. Other points is they've talked a bit in the opening about like those vipers architecture where you've separated a lot and they gave good ex- good reason why they are not looking at them compared to what they're demoing in the book but to me even some of those architecture uh like i said vipers are a good example they're good to train your brain they're good like to make you think about your assumptions they are good to just like throw you off guard and actually like oh they're doing it this way how can i do that without getting the whole picture of this architecture or how can i transform architecture to this one now that i have this problem and my current architecture is not 
solving this trade-off, or is not solving this issue, or is making it really hard to solve this issue. So first I have to offer a correction, because you said that Elm doesn't use a lot of functional, uh, not functional, reactive programming, and that is technically very incorrect. So it, oh. it doesn't use... Um, like their implementation, I haven't seen it, so I can't judge what they do specifically. However, uh, if you judge Elm as it was designed, it is basically the purest implementation of functional reactive programming you could make. Uh, and it, the language, uh, the Elm language, which is exists alongside the architecture, is a really interesting study in trying to design a language for a specific user base because the idea um, behind the language is we want to create a better language for the people who are just writing jQuery day to day. Um, and a lot of those people are not necessarily programmers. They're more front end designery type people. And so we want to give them something that is very easy to reason about so that they can do it easily. And the way you do it is you make everything pure functions because even though they might not care about the mathematical details of what a pure function is and what that entails and currying functions and all of the functional programming lingo, um, if you just tell them the basic flow of this is a very simple way to reason about how an application works, it turns out that they can actually do it pretty well. And they've actually removed features from the ELB language that were deemed too complex. And this caused a big debate, of course, because programmers who have been programming for a very long time are like, I want all of these Haskell concepts in ELB. And then there's <laughs> the other people who are like, I don't know what a monad is. Please keep it that way. And, uh, I don't want to take a position on that debate and all that stuff, but it's a very interesting study in how you can design a language for a specific user base, which I find very interesting. Yeah, and I'm I'm currently looking at I was I, I was sure that they mentioned that as an example, and that's right now that's what they do in contracts, and I guess it's because of their swift implementation of the T framework that it is not really reactive. It might be functional, yes, but pushing the reactive side of things to the limit, I think that's where the that's why they put MAVB, so the model adapters view binaries, because this really is like I would say it's a combination of like you have a view state that gets transformed into views directly, but you need to do that yourself. But the rest is really like all the magic that is reactive programming. But on like, top of that. What makes it reactive is not necessarily what the code is doing behind the scenes. It's does it actually behave like reactive programming at the end of the day? And the Elm architecture, regardless of how you implement it, if the end result is that it is basically a unidirectional flow of data that takes pure functions and outputs a view hierarchy at the end, congratulations, it's functional re reactive programming. Like it, if the results are effectively the same, it doesn't really matter how it was implemented as far as I'm concerned for it to be considered FRP. That's, going, a, that's a fair criticism. Yeah. Going more on the us versus them angle with regards to these creative new app architectures, I think one of the things that comes out of uh, these uh, frameworks that pop up every once in a while, like React Native and all of this stuff, which is like creative new ways of making new applications, is that often... What polarizes the discussion is that they're also bundled with a means of making apps in JavaScript or <laughs> apps that are cross-platform. And generally, the Mac and iOS developer community hates those things, whereas the interesting part of all of these projects is never, congratulations, you can make cross-platform apps. It's, 
what is the actual app architecture behind this? And is there anything that we can learn as a community from those projects? And that's why like React Native, not particularly interested in writing apps in JavaScript, but the actual implementation of it and how do you build an application with React Native is very interesting from a purely like theoretical point of view. And how can we implement this or integrate some of these concepts into how we build applications day to day? And that's why I try to always be on the bleeding edge of the, these kinds of technologies like Elm and all of that stuff, because I think it's good for us to be thinking about how we can improve the app architectures uh, for maintainability and for our, the businesses we work for, because it, eventually someone will have to maintain this code and it might not be us and we could save them a lot of time if it's actually built correctly. Oh, totally. And to me, like I was thinking about what we were saying is like, Especially if you look at the, uh, the Elm architecture where you create a full abstraction of, on top of your UI framework. Like, it does make sense that if you're already doing that, why can you just swap the UI framework behind it, behind the extraction? And that's why it makes sense to say, if I create a layer on top of what is the current UI framework, what happens if I change it? Then I just need to re-implement the driver that, like, converts it from iOS to Android, right? That converts your abstraction to Android to abstraction to and then that's where it it fused those two types of architecture the different way of thinking about app architecture and then it solved that problem because you're creating more layers that might be less useful when you only have one iOS app but when you have different when you have a cross-platform problem to solve creating those layers might isolate you from all the specificities of uh, those OSs. So that's why I'm, I was super happy that they were leaving that aside. And maybe you realize that, yes, if I'm not doing cross-platform, I don't really care about the ELM architecture because why do I need this full abstraction of the UER? There's benefits to it and there's downsides that I'm still trying to understand. But the one I think I fully grasp is really like by creating this abstraction, you're making sure that when you modify something, this modify the model goes, you know where it goes. And it's hard to, or it's clear when that, oh, if you bind, and a bit with MAVB and uh, MVVM, is like, if you bind it to this place, it, when you break the binding, like, it's broken. You see it. It's, and even the code will show it, like, not the compiler, but like the code say, oh, no, this label is bind to this other place. Ah, that explains why. You don't have to look at the view hierarchy and then say, oh, Where's the code in the view controller that changed this label? Oh, it is changed here in the view did load because I've read the first time the model and then it's changed in the other place when the model changes. Those bindings makes it a bit more uh, clear. One of the things that I find really fascinating about how the Elm architecture came to be is that basically the guy, the guy who wrote it, who invented it basically, was a big fan of video games. And he thought about game engines and he said, well, game engines run at 60 frames per second. Every 60th of a second, we draw exactly the state of the game as it is in the application. And that is really all a game engine does. Hmm. Um, it also propagates the actions back into the state of the game every 60th of a second as well. Um, so it was basically, well, how can we take what we've learned about how game engines work and make that work for general purpose applications? And it turns out the way you do it is not by rendering the entire DOM every time you, <laughs> every 60th of a second, but instead doing diffs to the virtual DOM, which is much, much faster, and then only changing the bits that need to be changed. 
uh, and that way you can have a highly responsive application. Uh, I'm not necessarily sold on like the impacts on battery performance and all of that stuff. And of course, I, I don't mean to imply that there's still a 60 FPS loop running. Uh, I mean, like that was the original concept. That doesn't mean it's still how it's implemented now. I think they got a lot smarter with regards to that because if everything is a unidirectional flow of data, you know every update that is happening and therefore you only need to update on the updates. But yeah, there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that kind of architecture design that it really is thinking out of the box uh, for that kind of stuff because no one else would have thought of like using ideas from game engines to build productivity applications or dumb web forms on the internet, but someone did it. And now we have, we can benefit from those great ideas. Yeah. And a last talking point I have for this, uh, just about the, all the app architectures. Um, some of them, as I mentioned, they are using descript descriptive languages for either describing the viewerarchy or even just describing the bindings themselves. And it feels to me that with a lot of the rumors we heard about Apple maybe bringing its own descriptive language for uh, iOS and Mac apps, and also with all the limitations we know uh, about the current KVU API, it feels to me that Apple should do something for those two problems. And I hope they do. Maybe they won't, but... Like all of these architectures require a form of a server, uh, and whether they are one way, two way, and I do hope that Apple is looking to that because the KVU API is like the, it's so you can make it work fine. But, uh, when I, when I see people showing me reactive programming and says like, you're just like, here's, I have my signal for the label value for <laughs> the label of the X field and I have my signal for my model and just do poop and you call a bind function and just bind together and voila. Uh, to me, that's like, that sounds simple and nice to do because I don't have to focus on, and maybe that's a problem. It's like, I don't have to focus about the lifetime. It should do that for you. It's like, oh, that's magic. Magic I want at some point. Yeah, I think UIKit is due for modernization. I think a lot of big companies have sort of, they've sort of showed their preference for these kinds of alternative approaches, especially because if you have large applications, it's hard for MVC to scale elegantly and you have to reach around and use creative ways of building your application to make it work. Uh, I don't want to get into the whole Facebook, like Xcode can't handle our scale discussion, but uh, there's definitely a lot of that coming out of them. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think, I'm sort of sad that Marzipan, which we haven't talked about on the show much, uh, didn't end up the way I thought it was going to be, which was going to be a new modern base framework for UIs on macOS and on iOS. Instead, we sort of got UIKit ported directly to macOS, which is not what we needed. Uh, but I, if Marzipan had been that new base, they could have just said like, cool, it's Swift only, we're going to put cool new binding shit in here. Uh, instead, they sort of just said, no, here's UIKit on macOS, and that makes me sad because it sort of means that I'm not expecting any significant progress in the modernization of UIKit in the next two years as they finish Marzipan. That's a good point. A bit uh, a sad point to end the episode, but that's a good I point. I mean, it wouldn't be an episode of Limitless <laughs> Possibility without a sad ending. That's true. That's true. Uh, but yeah, uh, last note, and that's officially the last note. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, 
this book is amazing. If you were unfamiliar with Objective-C.io's work, I strongly invite you to go look at their website. Uh, they used to run a magazine. Uh, so it was a, a iBooks magazine, which I love, and I still refer, uh, refer, look at it. Uh, I think now it's fully open on the web. It used to be paid. and No, it used to be always from the web, and then you paid to... Uh, Kind of, kind of to be a member like it wasn't iBooks just to get more money for just get money from people that, that really love their work uh i remember at some point i was so busy i couldn't read it but i didn't care i knew that the quality of the work was so good that i would just get my uh newsstand subscription and it shows uh, right now they stopped uh, this um they've stopped this magazine approach and they've moved to a subscription service for uh, what they call Swift Talks. So they have a lot of different topics implemented in all of the ways with functional programming and Swift. And they are writing a lot of nice books. Uh, App Architecture is their last one, but the, uh, we have all the other ones. And the one I want to revisit, that I want to revisit because, uh, there's a lot of new, new stuff in Core Data recent, in the recent iOS version is their Core Data book. Uh, but they have one about Swift collections and uh, functional programming in general with Swift uh, and I've only heard good comments about them from people that were reading them. Of course the irony is it's Objective-C.io and yet yes. they write everything in Swift now. Yes, yes, R. yes. R.I.P. Yes, yes. Objective-C uh, <laughs> yeah. and we should also specify to our listeners that it's objc.io, not Objective-C.io but yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, if you Google it, I'm sure Google will find it for you. Probably. Let's wrap it up. Cool. So if you want to find the show notes for this episode, including a link to obc.io, uh, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 94. Or if you want to go listen to our back catalog of episodes, we have recorded quite a few, uh, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And by the time you are listening to this, the Twitter API apocalypse has happened. So you can also find me on micro.blog at micro.blog slash Sakurina. You can find Luc Olivier at... Uh, if the Twitter apocalypse had happened when people listen to that, does it mean that it no longer exists? No, you still exist. You just are three minutes late to everybody's timelines. Ah, okay, fair. But uh, sadly, I'm not part of the cool kids. So I'm not on micro.blog nor on those Mastodon instances. So uh, you still can find me on Twitter at L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And maybe by next week, I might be a cool kid now. Who knows? Who knows? See you in two weeks. <laughs> wow, I love your lack of reaction to that statement. <laughs> See you in two weeks.